Uh, I think what else was interesting was that Rachel Lim was a Singaporean that was kind of like co-hosting with Sam Altman. So she's part of the OpenAI team. I thought the key phrase that they had that became the headline was very much about how humanity must co-evolve with artificial intelligence. And I thought that was a very striking statement. But I think obviously there's a sense of a generational shift, right? An evolutionary term, paradigm shift of further evolution, right? And as if there's a species or some kind of like accelerant to evolution itself, right? Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseville helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Morning, Shien. Good morning for me. It's good evening for you. <laughs> well, it always works out somehow, but here we are uh, across time zones and uh, really excited for this uh, episode. So I think we have two major topics. First of all, is talking very much about OpenAI's visit to Singapore and Jakarta. So talking a little bit about that and what it means for Southeast Asia and some of the topics it covered. And of course, secondly, we have had a recent report discussing kind of like founder stress and burnout and some of the quantitative numbers about something that we know quite well qualitatively. On that note, just want to quickly do a shout out to Anthony from Trial Capital, a partner and who is someone who's excited about Indonesia and Singapore and gave us lots of good feedback about our buddy Charisma. And so I think we'll try to incorporate that moving forward. So shout out to you, Anthony. Um, second person to shout out for is for Chu Yilin for recommending the startup snapshot report on founder stress. Uh, it was a tremendous recommendation. So definitely good fodder for our conversation. So if you're a listener and you're tuning in, feel free to email or WhatsApp or, I don't know, smoke signal to us, something for us to chew or digest or answer on your behalf. On that note, Shiyan, want to chat a little bit more about OpenAI in Singapore and Jakarta? Probably a lot of our listeners are aware Sam Altman and OpenAI were in town on the 13th and they did sort of an, a series of meetings, but also an open forum, I think with a thousand plus attendees where he took audience questions and, and did a little bit of a small talk. And it's kind of part of this extended, I think like 16 city world tour where they're kind of going around meeting developers, kind of sharing their vision and telling their story about what is OpenAI up to. It's not the scary, scary boogeyman. Inviting regulation and, and more conversation really around what's happening in that field. So I wasn't there myself, but I do have several spies. Nola. 
friends who are attending. And so it kind of gave me a little bit of color on the, on the conversation. And I think it is, it is what's top of mind for people who are working in the field, whether they be regulators or startups and other technologists. And so I think it's interesting that he's in Singapore and Jakarta. I think Singapore is sort of like the nucleus of Southeast Asian like tech and policy. He was hosted by AISG and they were moderating the conversation. And so I think folks are kind of eager to be part of that conversation and think about also how do we ensure that a lot of these foundation models are not only trained on Western data points, but also incorporate local data, local language, local norms as well. And so I think that is also part of what regulators are thinking about in addition to just regulating the output is also thinking about what's the input. And so if you think about like, Increasingly, people are incorporating ChatGPT, Anthropic, other models into their workflows. What else can people do to continue to like localize, improve the results, and actually build something that's useful for humanity? And so I think that's like a pretty interesting like set of questions for people to consider as they're building. Yeah, I think the simple fact is that they chose to go to Singapore and Jakarta is actually quite revealing, right, in terms of his priorities as well. Uh, for Japan, for the US and Europe to make, I think, a certain set of conversation and talking points. I think tracking his consistency of his message is actually quite clear to me that there are two major talking points that he's doing a lot to emphasize. The first, of course, is that he's actually pro-regulation, which is, I think, quite an actual proactive stance, actually. I think it's quite uncommon, I think, for early stage founders, for a company that obviously has grown tremendously, there's a lot of regulatory action, but I think this is probably like from product public launch to doing a global tour to really advocate for ever regulation consistently is... Well, there's a cynical perspective to that, right? Which is like, now that we're public, let's regulate and keep everyone else slower or down. And I haven't seen a ton of specifics on what that regulation would look like. I think it plays well to regulators to say like, hey, look, we're so open, come regulate us. But at the same time, I think there was a draft of the European proposed regulations. And he's like, yeah, we're going to try to meet them. But if we cannot, then we'll just, just shut down in Europe. Right. So that's also like a double edged sword, right? Which is like, yeah, you want to regulate. But if you want your people to have access to this stuff, you need to regulate in a way that allows us to still operate. Right. Yeah. And I think what was interesting is that we've seen this kind of regulatory differentiation, but also arbitrage play out. And I think one of the interesting analysis that I was reading was that I think the country that ends up being the most, you can say, permissive or lax, depending on which side you take on, on AI, data, and usage, will end up becoming a hub for AI companies. I think there's a very interesting dynamic, right? And I think we saw that to some extent, actually, with crypto, where there was, in Singapore, a more permissive regime on crypto. And so we saw Singapore become a crypto hub. And now we've seen that with the recent... Well, no, no, no. Yeah. So I, I would push back on that, right? Which I don't yeah. think it was permissive. I think they were just clearer. Yeah. So for a long period of time, the SEC didn't say anything. Okay, that's a fair point. So then yeah. it was like, people were like, well, am I... Is this a security? Does this pass the Howey test? Like, there's a lot of like... And so I think MAS was on the forefront of like defining things more clearly up front and creating a process for people to do it. And so people came, but I don't actually think it was like permissive. And I think you see that in the flow of companies to Hong Kong and to Dubai, 
because where MAS came down pretty strongly was around like advertising. So yeah. they shut off all the advertising to consumers, to retail customers, yeah. essentially by crypto, which really shut off a lot of growth for people. And so I think there's two things, right? Which is like, one, you want a, you want a reasonable set of rules to play by that are articulated so you can continue. And you don't want like arbitrarily something will come down and say, hey, you're not allowed to do this. And you're like, but you didn't tell me. So I think that's a little bit part of the play here, right? Which is like engage regulators early so you can set out some rules of the road so you can continue because you think there is a potential that down the line regulators could go too far and overreact and that uncertainty is worse for you, right? Yeah. So you can like proactively co-write regulation together rather than say, hey, I'm going to be a cowboy and then someone's going to come and smack me. Yeah, uh, I think what else was interesting was that Rachel Lim was a Singaporean that was kind of like co-hosting with Sam Altman. So she's part of the OpenAI team. She's, a, I believe, a Raffles Junior College alumnus. So kind of interesting to see that dynamic that's there. So some local representation on the stage. I thought the key phrase that they had that became the headline was very much about how humanity must co-evolve with artificial intelligence. And I thought that was a very striking statement. I think co-evolve, I, I don't know whether it was the ad-libbed or was that prepared, but I think obviously there's, I think a sense of a generational shift, right? An evolutionary term, a paradigm shift of further evolution, right? And as if there's a species or some kind of like accelerant to, I don't know, I don't know evolution itself, right? So I thought it was an interesting dynamic I mean, to say. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of true, right? Like if you think about it, how our human brains have evolved. Like a hundred years is actually not a lot of time in evolutionary timescale, right? But you think about what has happened in the last hundred years in terms of access to information, how we consume things. It has been a huge change. And it's not clear that people have actually trained themselves to harness it more effectively. It's like why like access to processed foods and sugar just makes people fatter it doesn't like reduce global hunger it just makes people who have access even fatter because like your body is tuned to say like i want i want that delicious delicious sugar and fat so humanity must co-evolve at mcdonald's yeah no no but like i, I think that that's like a it's like a totally good point yeah. right which is like in one sense, you know, you could say, wow, we have the internet now. Everyone on earth with like an internet connection, a cell phone, has access to like more information than anybody in all of history. Right. But what does that actually happen? Does that actually lead to like more people becoming educated, more people becoming enlightened? Or does it just lead to like larger and larger consumption of our day with entertainment and being like broadcast stuff into our heads? Right? And so now yeah. you're at this next stage of like, co-piloting with AI and that's going to like transform a lot of our workflows. How do we co-evolve with people so that they don't just blindly do whatever the AI tells them? Like we already had that first case of the lawyer who submitted totally fake cases generated by ChatGPT, And he was like, Oh, I didn't know that it could hallucinate. Well, it happens all the time. I mean, that's what happens for the 737 max, right? Is this like, you have all these pilots, obviously it's so autopiloted and then without sufficient training, basically the, the co-pilot that's the system ends up becoming an autopilot and the autopilot sometimes doesn't work, right? So I think, you know, I actually think something this, right? I think everyone in AI is using the word co 
to really hide something. Like whenever they say something all the time, you always have to watch out because they're trying to hide something that's the opposite. And what I'm noticing a lot for AI stuff is they're using a lot of the word co. So co-pilot, because they're saying we're not removing a control. It's a co-pilot. It's co-evolve. So this co-word is coming up over and over again, basically to imply that it's a shared status, right? There's a peer, right? And I'm just saying like, I think, like you said, I think there's going to be a lot of autopilot folks. There's a lot of people automatic, but I think it's only a matter of time before. Um, so I think the yeah. 737 MAX is a really interesting example, right? Because that bug, right, that caused the plane crashes, it had actually been reported before. But it had been reported in incidents that were not fatal. And the fatal incidents actually were in budget airlines that had, I think, pretty deliberately tried to reduce the amount of training in order to increase the supply of pilots to staff their flights. And so, yeah, like if people try to take shortcuts like that, right? It's sort of like co-pilots work for like the two standard deviation, right? Like amount of instances, but you actually need to have like better judgment and more expertise for the tails. But in that moment when the tail happens and you didn't train the person enough, right? Then you're screwed. So I think that maybe you say co-evolve is to hide something, but I think co-evolve is actually an important word to say like, hey, you can't, you can't just abdicate all responsibility to the AI. Like you actually have to put effort into thinking about how people should interact with this in a responsible way. I think capital and asset owners are trying to like scale and I'm going to make the air sound. And the reason why there's the air sound is because you make it sound as if individuals get to choose to be on a peer basis. But I think a lot of asset owners are basically saying, how do I rebuild this business model where it's mostly AI and some humans, which makes sense. I mean, it's like a factory model, right? the industrialization of production of content. And I just think that for a lot of folks, I think there's going to be a lot of fact where folks are going to be churned out because of these productivity improvements effectively taking over their jobs. And one discussion I was having, I was at the ACE Awards Gala. We had received a nice award for, I guess, ACE age 35. You're so fancy, Jeremy. So fancy. I thought it was a really interesting conversation I got to have a little bit because we're discussing about the political ramifications, right, of this. And what was interesting was that we had saw this giant wave of globalization where basically blue-collar jobs was moved towards China. And obviously, China saw the fastest rise in living incomes for poor folks, etc. But we also saw the hollowing out of the blue-collar middle America industrial class, right? And so that has dramatically reshaped the political coalition, right, of blue-collar workers. So... There's a weird alliance between business Democrats and business Republicans, but it was okay for different reasons. And so we saw that different change. But that was all, you know, for blue collar, right? And now we have white collar professionals where I don't think they get a choice to be a co-pilot or not. I think a lot of their roles are going to get reduced, changed. And sure, eventually, I think in 10, 20, 30 years, we're all going to reskill ourselves in different roles. But I think there's going to be a lot of jobs that are just going to go away, right? I think we see the writer strike is... They are very assistant about the AI side of it. They're worried about their jobs being automated out to some extent. So I think there's this interesting dynamic where I think we're only seeing the very beginnings of this 
yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a co-pilot. <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's mostly autopilot with some checks. Yeah. Well, we should like make a bet in ten years. On what, like, like what percent folks? of jobs? Yeah, yeah. What percent of jobs have been automated away versus not? Maybe okay. We will make the bet right now. We should think about this for next week. Well, the interesting part was that McKinsey actually did a report on what jobs will get automated away. Uh, that was done about a couple of years ago, and I thought it was a really good report. But they did not consider this at all. So actually, they wrote about how a lot of these like professional jobs that require communication were like a good skill to learn to avoid getting replaced by robots. And now I'm just like laughing a little bit because this report has to be updated now. So now I'm like wondering like maybe the only job that's left is like maybe like celebrity and maybe doctor and like the guilds, right? Lawyers, soldiers. Yeah. I mean, there are auto-generated celebrities too. Oh yeah, I met one today at <laughs> startups. And it was just, yeah, that's another thing altogether. For all the lonely people out there, you don't need to meet someone special. You can just have I mean, yeah, replica, 20 bucks yeah, a month. Yeah, yeah. Adding China some reports of folks who are falling in love with the AIs. I don't know. Interesting times, right? <laughs> I think it'll be a countercultural movement. It was like, real humans, not AI. I don't know. I can't yeah, think of a catchy protest slogan yet. No, it's yet. just like artisanal honey. Yeah. Or Organic artisanal... humanity. <laughs> I, don't, I need to think of a good... Hand-crafted. I didn't think of a good UC Berkeley, like, you know, we always had a lot of protests and free speech movement, right? You know, it was like, the robots have got to go. Down robots. I don't know. Don't quit your day job, man. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, GPT, can you please make me some slogan writers? Slogans for the anti-AI and anti-robot. I don't know. So I read this really interesting article in The Economist. And I think there's an opinion piece about how at the end of the day, this isn't actually artificial intelligence because this is not thinking, it's not conscious. But what it's done is it's hack language, right? As a model, right? You and I, I'm conscious, you're conscious. But we communicate through these words that we hacked on top of our biology. And so for the first time, actually, you have non-intelligent beings, in a sense, who are able to talk like us. And so we look at language as a form of sentience and consciousness. But we look at dolphins and we look at monkeys and we look at pigs and they're like 100% smart, but we're like, hey, you don't speak English and you can't put an apostrophe where it needs to go. So guess what? You don't count, right? So I think there's an interesting dynamic where, you know, at the end of the day, these language models are not really consciousness, but they're actually just statistical probability language. But yet, I think it's so good and it's already good enough that people are falling in love with it, starting to raise AI little kids. It's just kind of like bonkers to see that. I think that's why I think it's really transformational because it's not about intelligence, right? It's about language generation from my perspective. I've always said my dog was smarter than my kids until about the age of two. <laughs> so, so chat GPT for at the age of what? Two is how much smarter than your kids and the dog? Yeah. I mean, yeah, but like the dog, like, you never have to spend time convincing it to go to sleep. Yeah. You don't have to feed the dog. The dog kind of knew how to eat kind of from day one. It was yeah. really fast to potty train. Dog follows directions. Yeah, I mean, like pre-two, you know, the dog is like actually outperforming. We always tell the, tell the kids like, hey, Toaster is like the best child, the most obedient yeah. child. 
My favorite use case of ChatGPT so far has someone said, please pretend to be a loving spouse. <laughs> Do you process so, your comments through this before you talk yeah. to your wife? So, so, so he was telling me that basically like he has a long day at work, right? And the wife doesn't want to hear whatever he's saying. So he just writes to ChatGPT like, oh, I had a tough day at work and blah, 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 blah. ChatGPT is like, oh, sorry, dear. How are you feeling about that? He just, he just, and then he like processes that on his cab ride home. And then he, and then he's like, kind of like doesn't do that data dump to the spouse. And I'm like, that's hilarious because somewhere between a therapist and a really good friend, i.e. a spouse, maybe. But I don't know. It was just I can't a, decide how I feel about that. I know. Yeah. It's interesting. But then does, it just, does it just reduce the resolution of conversation you have with your spouse? Or it's just sort of like you think your spouse is not interested in it. So you, you're like creating a space to have conversation about things that they're interested in. Oh, is this emotional cheating? Like, like... Oh, I don't know. I think cheating is a hard word. Like, that's a pretty harsh <laughs> word. But... I don't know. That's kind of interesting, right? Like, I mean, I guess you have different friends who serve different functions in your life, right? Like yeah, you might have exactly. sports friends or yeah. business friends or whatever it is. Interesting. Adultery with the chat bot. And you know what? It's not impossible. I think flat out, I think there'll be a, there's definitely a headline that's going to happen in the next five years. No, I think in Replica, yeah. they've already talked about it. Yeah. That people use their Replica uh, friends to... Yeah emotionally process things and it can feel like emotional cheating you know there are also positive cases where it's like hey it actually helped them think about how they were relating to their spouse and do it better even if it did start as like a venting thing yeah talking about venting and stress and processing your feelings so speaking about processing feelings and feeling stressed out about life we had an interesting report called Startup Snapshot, which is available and linked in the transcript on the podcast. But here's some key statistics about how founders uh, are processing mental health. So I thought it was interesting to see about how they said 72% of founders report that there's a negative impact on their mental health. 81% of founders are not really open about the stress, fears, and challenges. And I thought my favorite two pieces of that was like only 23% of founders go to a psychologist or a coach to talk about those feelings. And only 10% of founders turn to their investors to talk about their stress. <laughs> yeah. I uh, often we... feel that part of my job is being a therapist. But to only 10% of them. So if you were truly trusted by everybody, you could have 10 times more of those Do I want 10 times more? You see, people can feel the energy, so they don't want to give it to you. But I, I think it's totally fair, right? I mean, the truth is, it's a tough, right? I mean, when I was a founder, I honestly trusted some investors more than other investors, right? And even for investors I did trust, obviously, I was thoughtful about, hey, I only have one hour a week, right, to process some stuff, maybe one hour a month, right? And so am I really going to be talking about my feelings, right? I'll rather just talk about work or the decisions. There's so many things to talk about. So I was definitely stressed as a founder and yeah, I think I'll probably put myself in one of those buckets of, I was one of the 90% who did not talk to my investor about my stress. I think it comes out in different ways, right? It's not like they call you intending to talk about their stress. It's more like you talk about the business and then you can kind of sense that they're a little bit down. And so you kind of do a check-in and you're like, hey, how are you feeling? Like, what's going on with you? And kind of normalize it because 
you know, what we tell people when we write the first check is like, hey, most of the time in a startup, things are kind of going badly. So you don't need to put up a front for us, right? You don't have to pretend like everything is up and to the right and crutching it because that's just not normally the state of affairs. And so it's kind of giving people permission, like establishing that social contract to say like, it's okay to be like, it's not going that well. It doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It just means like, you got to figure out how to solve something locally or whatever it is. But I would say like 90% of the time, you kind of feel like things are not going well. Something's always on fire, right? <laughs> Something's so. always on fire. That's 100%, right? And I think some numbers here, right? They're saying like out of like 100% of the founders, 44% have high stress, you know, 37% have anxiety, 36% have burnout, 13% have depression, and 10% have panic attacks. So that's actually a pretty uh, sizable chunk. I mean, the way I think about it is like, yeah, half of the folks therefore are stressed out and one third have anxiety or burnout, right? And one in 10 have depression. So yeah. I don't I mean, think it's easy. They journey. also don't take care of themselves, right? Like they eat, yeah. overeat or they drink or they don't sleep enough or they're not exercising, right? And so all those things I think are actually really important for being able to go the distance. Like yeah. You need to have strong emotional resilience, but your body needs to feel good. So like you do need to sleep, you need to exercise and you need to like, have places where you can like hang out with people and connect with people who matter to you because the worst is also if like things are going badly on the home front right like yeah if your spouse is mad at you because you're not spending enough time or they feel like you're absent then yeah it can just be bad news bears all around yeah i remember my spouse was a well then girlfriend was frustrated with me because she was like jeremy you're, you're not taking care of yourself right you're not taking a haircut you're not shaving, right? You're putting on weight. You're stressed out all the time. You can only talk about work. And I was like, you know, sit down. I was like, yeah, because all I think about is work. That's why I can't talk about anything else other than work. It was terrible. And I, was, I think it was quite validating to see the report and be like, oh, okay, thank goodness. It, was like, it looks like, yeah, 59% of founders sleep less in starting a startup. It's like, oh, I don't feel like I'm part of the minority, right? Um, yeah, but I mean, I think that's why co-founders are really important. Because having someone who like really understands what's going on, I think it's hard for your spouse because they're kind of like not in it, right? They're sort of, I mean, they're forced to endure it, but they're not in it the way like a co-founder is. And having co-founders who can like balance you out and sort of also laugh, I think is like super important. So I don't know. I just remember in the early days of NerdWallet, we would like work and then we would all work out together. We would like exercise. <laughs> It's like the only word difference is the word out. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like we'd be yeah. in the office and then like there were like 10 of us or whatever and we shared like we went to the same exercise class. We all work out and then we would all eat like greasy Chinese food together and then we go to bed and we like start all over again the next day. It was awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you see, I, I see I missed out the step about exercising. So I would just work. I'll, I'll drink Soylent for lunch. I would eat. Oh, uh, I know, disgusting. terrible. It was terrible in retrospect, but I used to chug like caffeinated Soylent. Oh. Yeah, I created next to my. What dad. kind of Singaporean are you? That well, you would even I was. I was. Allow I was, Soylent into your body. Oh, I know. I was one of those. Yeah, and then I would dinner. I would get home, and then I'll order like a platter of sushi. I want to work out, so I gained twenty kilograms actually. So. I gained from a normal weight. I became medically obese by American standards, not by Asian and BMI standards. 
uh, it was just horrible, actually. <laughs> and then I remember after I sold the company and then I did my physical. And then basically my blood results were like, oh, you're pre-diabetic, you're pre-hypertension, you have oh, no. bad cholesterol, you have no vitamin D, <laughs> you have bad testosterone, you are obese. <laughs> and I was just like, look at, your liver enzymes are terrible. And I was just like, look at this thing. And I got this report. I remember I was in line for a ramen shop. <laughs> New York, and I was just like so sad. And I walked out of the line for this Michelin start ramen shop. And then I had to, I remember I walked to a dim sum shop and got some like steam stuff. And I was just like, <laughs> such an abysmal thing. I was like, oh, I finally have time to do a phys- health physical. And I got these terrible results. And I kind of knew it was happening. Yeah. It's okay. Now you've got yourself on track, right? Yeah, because I'm on venture capital now. Your svelte svelte form. Yeah, I know because it's much less stressful. And I think there's a lot more control, right? I think. And I think obviously I have the benefit of a good social support network as well now. I think I'm much more intentional now. Like I have to sleep harder (laughs) in terms of like melatonin and the valerian rune and the soap and the pillow and all this stuff. I don't know. Weighted blanket, man. Yeah, I got a weighted blanket as well. All about the weighted blanket. I know, right? And then, yeah. So I think another thing that we talked about a little bit was also, yeah, 42% of founders report the fear of failure as the major source of stress. And I thought that was a really interesting number. And I thought it was interesting because actually over the past week, I actually hosted the Phoenix Offsite. So basically it's a virtual offsite for founders that are moving on to the next chapter in their life because they exited their startup, because they had to wind it down, because it's a co-founder departure. And so we had about kind of like a dozen folks just kind of like discussing about their feelings. And really, I think the, I think it was interesting to see that the language about what is success or failure was a really, really tough thing. And I think one person framed it up as like, okay, so you're successful, you become a unicorn and I'm not that, right? For whatever reason. So I'm a failure. Is that right? <laughs> and then I was like, whoa, like, based on statistics, but that's a statistic on a company level, but to embed company success versus personal failure was an interesting, I don't know what, dichotomy, right? And so I think there's an interesting dynamic between what the right language is for founders. Well, do they think about it as a one-shot or they kind of want to keep playing the game? Like they want to take more shots on goal? I, I think they're just thinking about the last shot, you know, the last game, right? And all the various mistakes or things they did well. So I think a lot of emotional processing and also processing of the facts and the different circumstances. So I don't think they are thinking too hard, honestly, for the cohort of founders that I was coaching. Wasn't thinking too hard about what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just one step down the road, right? Before they can process mm. that. You talk to a lot of founders in the Valley and it's a funny thing, right? You kind of need to have two things in your head simultaneously. One is like, you kind of know that the probability of getting a unicorn is pretty low, but at the same time, you think you can do it, right? That's why you're doing it. And you feel kind of, you love being in the game. And so even if this shot isn't the unicorn, right? You sell it. It's not an amazing outcome, whatever it is. You still learned a lot and you're going to take those learnings and roll it into the next shot because you're playing the game, right? And the game is like, 
I get to be in control of my destiny. I get to build cool stuff. I get to work with people I enjoy. And part of the game may be you can take breaks and go to Fang, big company, and rest for a little bit before coming out and playing again. The winning, I guess, or the success is more about the ability to play the game rather than necessarily generating a unicorn outcome every time you take a shot. Yeah, I mean, I think that rhymes with another number in the report, which is about how 93% of founders would definitely potentially start another venture, despite feeling very stressed about the current venture. And I think that was actually a very strong sense as well, which is I think most founders in that group actually wanted to keep doing it because I think there's a real strong sense of autonomy, of control, of freedom, but also I think a strong sense of mission and purpose. That, And so a lot of the questions were like, we did have a panel of founders who either built another startup or joined corporate or became a VC. And a lot of the questions actually were about what you just said, which was like, hey, how should I think about doing another shot? How should I rest? Would I be accepted by a corporate, right, as a founder, right? And so there's, I think, an interesting dynamic of like, I don't know what's the word, like feeling awkward about whether they would fit in that corporate mold, right? And be able to join that. But I think also... Bigger companies, not necessarily corporate, but bigger later stage startups hiring former founders is great because you oh, kind of get 100%. someone who's like, hey, I know how to make things happen with limited resources. <laughs> and here I am. I'm a bigger company. I can give them some resources, right? Like right. they don't need to go and raise money themselves. If you're saying like, hey, run with it. Go make, make stuff happen. Yeah. And those can be really amazing for culture, especially if you're bigger, maybe like things have slowed down a little bit. You're not feeling as much of that go, go, go urgency. You can kind of inject these people into an organization. So you're not going full on like, I don't know, working for Acme paper company or whatever, but something that's still sort of in, in a tech related innovation space. Yeah, I think it's a tricky thing. And I think the companies that are willing to be change oriented and trying to fight for the future, I think absorb founders better. I think there are a lot of companies, obviously, that are more focused on preserving the status quo, right? And I think that find it, it's not going to be a culture match, let alone be a role opening for someone. Oh, yeah. I mean, it'll be very frustrating, right? Yeah. I think there is, I think, a stigma still around, I think, obviously, founder failure, right? I think Southeast Asia got into that first wave of like, now founders are a profession and a career. But I think mm. the stigma around failure and I think definitely also varies across the region. I think there's a sense that I think Singapore is getting a bit better, but I think it's still pretty tough in Indonesia and Vietnam right now because they don't have that wave, right, of startup success and failure and the recycling of that talent across the ecosystem. So I thought it was interesting to hear from folks in the ecosystem be like, oh, like, I can't find a job here in my local who is able to understand this, right? And I thought it was not an easy part, right? I mean, Singapore wasn't hospitable, 10 years ago for a lot of these mm-hmm. talent as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, But now there's more other startups too, right? So you should have like yeah. a bigger base of places to kind of recruit into. Yeah, but a lot of startups are also kind of like struggling as well. So interesting. Was there, was there a good conversation kind of like reflecting on like what they would have done differently or kind of like what were their learnings or takeaways from the past experience? I mean, I think it's... <sighs> Long story short is no. I also don't think it was the right space to do so. Because even for myself, like for my two companies, obviously it took time for me to be like, okay, these are the things I did awesome and these are the things I didn't do great on. 
right? And it took me honestly, I think, for both companies, it took me two years, I think, to fully process and kind of like get that full learning, right? So I would actually. It's too raw, you're saying. I think you just need space and time, right? And yeah, I did well and it was okay, right? But still, there were things I would have done differently. And I have, a, I have Google Docs, right, for each company where I'm just like, this, you know, it's weird, right? It's like both of them are about 10 pages long, right? But these are the bullet points, right? It's like, these are the things I did well on. These are the things that I could have done differently. These are the reasons why I did them wrong on a fundamental level, right? So then there's a little bit recursive and I'm like, Leaving so like, on my can, staff, yeah. would you share like some of those learnings? Like if you were going to start a third company, like kind of what principles would you bring into it? I think for the first company, I think what I learned was that I learned that for myself, we were a consultancy selling to the social sector and then we were a consultancy that started selling the government. And what I learned about this was that I felt like selling the government was something that I was didn't find myself to have a lot of energy in, right? And so that was a personal realization. And when I realized that, that's unlocked me to go find a successor to do that, right? And so I think, but I kind of did that strategy without knowing that. It was just yeah. a discovery process. It wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. It wasn't a good thing. But it's just like, that's not my thing to sell giant projects in that sense, right? Even though I think, of course, I think Singapore government is probably like one of the best governments to work with. And I think they're tremendous people. But I'm just saying like, that wasn't my energy sweet spot, right? At that point of time. Second company, I think one big difference I would do differently was just like thinking about the long term, right? I think I enjoyed education tech and I really enjoyed the startup journey. It's just that I was building it in America and my heart was in Southeast Asia, right? In Singapore, right? And so there's this interesting geographic realization to be like, oh, I would like to be home. Mm. <laughs> I, know, I know this sounds kind of cheesy, but I was like, yeah, I miss home, right? I miss my parents. I miss my sister. I miss my friends. So I think it was an interesting dynamic, right? So I was like, oh, I'm glad if I was to build something, I would build this out of Southeast Asia, right? But I think it's not obvious, right? Until you do it. So these are all realizations that takes time to process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah. How about you? When you think about it, obviously you help a lot of founders, right? Go through both the success stage, but also go through the failure stage in terms of winding down or moving on to the next chapter as well. So how have you tried to help or how have you tried to help them process? I mean, I think the wind down thing is like pretty rough, right? Because there's like the personal sort of how you feel about it. And then there's just all the like paperwork and cat hurting and so the whole thing is kind of like not that fun and so I think part of it is like not giving permission necessarily but sort of saying like because they kind of feel bad right so they wanted to win they wanted to make you a ton of money and now they're winding down and you know they've lost all your money or they'll go use cents on the dollar or something right so it's like no one's like excited about this outcome and Part of it is like being able to say like, hey man, it's okay. Note to founders, this doesn't mean you just set my money on fire, but if you made a good faith effort, you behaved with integrity, you tried hard and you like treat everyone well on the way down, like that's all we can ask for as investors, right? Like we, we know the asset class we're in, we know the risks we're taking and it doesn't mean that we're not gonna back you on your next thing. Right. So it's kind of like how you conduct yourself in that moment, I think, also determines how your investors see you and like, do you get to play the game again? And so some of it, a little bit, is just like sometimes people are like, I'm so sorry. Like, 
I really wanted to make money and da 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 da. And you're like, yeah, this isn't the outcome we wanted. Like, I appreciate you treating everyone fairly. I appreciate you communicating well and like doing this in a good way. And give yourself that space and permission to like take some time off before you kind of go rush into something else. And just kind of talking them through that, right? So, so I think on the sort of like wind down side, that's kind of where it is. Uh, uh, on the stress side, I think when I do see founders getting burnt out, I will check in and I say, when's the last time you took a vacation? And they'll be like, I don't have time for a vacation. Yeah, I don't like, as I was thinking, that's the answer, yeah. And you're like, but you don't have time to be burnt out either. I do not give myself permission to be burnt out. But... Yeah, but, but it's sort of just like yeah. saying like, hey, I want you to go take a weekend off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't, like literally tell everyone you're turning off. Like you're not going to check your email. I just rest. Bring yeah. a book, bring a journal, but don't, you, you just have to do it. And, and, and I know this feeling. I like when I was in the thick of it, my coach was like, please just take four hours today and go away. Like go for a hike. Yeah. Because you know, it was just too much. I was like, I have too many things to do. I cannot take a day off. And my coach is like, you have to four hours just go for a hike <laughs> yeah i know it sounds crazy right and yeah. then when you do it and you actually free your brain to have some new thoughts you're like oh my god yes why didn't yeah. i do this yeah and so sometimes it's just like reminding people to do that and i think a corollary of that especially in the remote world is reminding founders to do it for their teams right so like I told a founder, I was like, hey, you guys have been driving really hard for the last 12 months. You need to take your team on an offsite. And it shouldn't yeah. be super work focused. You guys should just have fun. Right. But like, you're going to burn your people out if you do this. Right. So, yeah, I think sometimes it's just like reminding people, giving them permission, even though they don't, they didn't seek my permission, but just sort of normalizing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's talking about hikes and that time out. I think one of the things that I shared was that I think if you are a founder who's departing for a new chapter, this is a great opportunity to go off the grid, right? So after my first company, I went for a Vipassana retreat. That's like 10 days silent meditation, no talking. I went my co-founder. So it was interesting because we talked to each other all the time. It's not even both like not talking to each other, but we're in the same space. Very conscious uncoupling, you know? Uh, <laughs> Uh, but and after that, I went <laughs> on a such hike. A hippie. <coughs> Don't tell anybody. And after that, I went on a hike on the Pacific Crest Trail from Los Angeles to Yosemite, and I was reading and listening to Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Wait, how long is that? You hiked the PCT? Yeah, for one month. Yeah, I mean, not the whole thing. This one month. <coughs> That's so but, cool. I want to yeah. do that. Yeah, I should totally do. And so I was talking with another founder in the Botanic Gardens which is going for a walk because he's departing a successful company. And actually one of the conversations that we had was just like, hey, there's an opportunity to do like the Camino de Santiago, which is you walk yeah. from Spain to France. It's like a one-month walk. The chance to take a train, right? For those long train rides across America, across Europe. All those things are like, I don't know, off-the-grid experiences that you get to do. It, it's a small window of opportunity to do, right? And I think giving yourself... Did you hike by yourself that. for a month? Well, I went with my then girlfriend and who, after that hike, we, I was like, oh, maybe she can be my fiance and eventual wife. So yeah, that was a nice moment to walk and hike for a month in a shared tent and all that stuff. 
It was great. Wow. Um, yeah, it was awesome. But then, of course, once we came back to Nature City, then we had an argument. And I was like, no, us feeling so lovey-dovey for a month. And then the city, we had some squabble about something. And I was like, boo. And after that, I was like, oh, no, it's just fine. Wait, um, did you get married? Is it your current wife or not? Yes, it is my current okay, wife. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was confusing, which is like... It's a confusing. It was like, it was a good story, but it bad. No, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My now wife was who I hiked with the PCT with. And we were just a boyfriend, girlfriend at that point in time. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was fun. It paid off. Yeah. Uh, my funny I story mean, here, very quickly, is that to get out of the trailhead, you had to hitchhike. And I realized that having my wife be by the roadside hitchhiking, and then the car would slow down to pick her up, and I'll just jump out of the bushes effectively. And I'd be like, hey, there's two of us who need a hitchhike, right? So. But you know, I, I thought it was a wonderful hike. It was very restorative. And I, actually, that was the big difference because after my first company, I had that window of time. But for my second company, we sold in 2019 Q4. And then it was a pandemic right after that, right? So I just didn't have any of that space. But also, I mean, it was a terrible time of tragedy and I was just glued to my TV, right? I was seeing all this stuff. So it was just a very tough time, right? For everybody, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah. well. I wanted to hike the Annapurna circuit for my honeymoon. Ooh. And my wife happened? was like, no. She's like, I want to have hot showers and a bed for my honeymoon. And I was like, yeah, uh, you know, that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's why you can do the Camino de Santiago. You get to do that with the hot showers, right? Yeah. So I still, I've yet to hike the Annapurna circuit. But the PCT is on my list. I definitely want to do that. I know. It's such a wonderful hike and it's beautiful. But Would you ever do the whole hike. thing? I I think there was a period of time when I wanted to section hike the rest of the Pacific Crest Trail. But now that I have kids, I kind of realized that it's just not doable. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just a long chunk of time. You got to go to SF, the West Coast. So I think I'm hoping that maybe when my kids are teenagers, hopefully I can like have, I don't know, coach them in the ways of nature so that I have a new hiking buddy, I guess, maybe for the rest of the... My friend, I have a friend who's hiking the PCT right now with his yeah. wife. But they're retired. This year, the snow is... There's a lot of snow still because yeah. of all the rain and snow that happened over the yeah. winter. So they, they have to skip around to try to avoid yeah. the, the snow yeah. sections and then come back yeah. and do them later in the summer. Yeah. Thankfully, I didn't have to do that during our time frame. So, well, on that note, anything else you want to kind of like think about or share to wrap up this episode? I think the wrap up is everyone should just go outside. Go for a hike. Turn off. Disconnect for a bit. Don't let your replica model bother you while you're out yeah, in yeah, nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think for me, I think the key takeaway is, I don't know, I think the word for me is humanity. I think it was interesting where I think there's humanity in the context of OpenAI and ChatGPT. Also humanity in the space of like stress, right? I think, I think that's the one word summary for me. Humanity. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome. Well, see you next week, Shien. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.